Welcome to the Global Visions podcast. My name is Ariana Palomo. And my name is Michelle Alas. And we'll be today's hosts. The podcast is produced in conjunction with the Brown Journal of World Affairs and seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are super excited to be hosting our next guest of the podcast today, Professor Naomi Ro Ariasa. Professor Ro Ariasa is a professor at the UC Hastings School of Law and an author. Her work focuses on state and corporate accountability for human rights violations, as well as criminal law and topics on global environment. Among many other works, Professor Ro Ariasa has authored The Pinochet Effect, Transnational Justice on the Age of Human Rights and Impunity and Human Rights in International Law and Practice. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. A pleasure. To start off, could you tell us a little bit about your expertise and experience in this area? I've read that you grew up in Latin America and have practiced as a lawyer in international and environmental law. I'm curious to hear about where else your research and work has taken you. Thanks, and thank you very much for inviting me to be on the podcast. So most of my work has been in Latin America, and I've been doing this for well over 30 years at this point. Um, most of it has been in the area of transitional justice. And what what we mean by transitional justice is what happens uh, after a country pulls out of civil war or dictatorship uh, to deal with the crimes of the past and to provide some kind of redress uh, for victims. Um, and the article that I wrote for the journal comes from some soul searching on my part around the effectiveness of transitional justice in certain states like those that I discuss here, uh, where despite there having been truth commissions and some trials and reparations programs to a greater or lesser extent, um, things haven't... Um, worked out as well as they might, uh, in part because of the existence of predatory elites, including both military and the private sector, and extreme inequality. Uh, the other things that I've written about, as you mentioned, uh, the Pinochet Effect book, which is about the saga of how Chile's former dictator, uh, Augusto Pinochet, was prosecuted. Uh, for rights violations that took place in Chile, but the prosecutions and investigations happened in a number of different places, including Spain, the United Kingdom, and elsewhere. Um, a lot of my more practical work has been uh, assisting victims groups to bring criminal investigations against those who committed genocide or crimes against humanity in Guatemala and El Salvador. Thank you so much for your answer to that question and explaining a little bit more about your origins in this work. You mentioned in your article that Guatemala's trajectory was distinct in its extensive history of repressive military governments and its ensuing corrupt and predatory states. Given that other countries in Central America have experienced internal conflict of various degrees, what distinguishes the Guatemala case from other countries in the region? Well, you're right. There are a lot of commonalities in the region. Uh, there's not a lot of history of democracy. There's a history of heavy-handed military dictatorships uh, operating with the support of the private sector, including the, pri the foreign private sector, as in United Fruit in Guatemala, and with the support, historically, of the U.S. government. 
Um, these states are characterized by extreme inequality, uh, by a lack of a lot of viable economic options beyond being exporters of agricultural goods. Um, and there's also the commonality of armed movements uh, during the 1970s and 80s in all of the countries of Central America except Costa Rica. Um, and that includes Mexico, which is sort of, but not quite the same. Uh, what makes Guatemala different? Um, well, I think a couple things. First is the large indigenous population, uh, both as a victim and as an actor. Uh, there was a large indigenous population in El Salvador as well, but in 1932, it was basically decimated. Uh, in Honduras, there are very active indigenous groups, but they're much less numerous uh, and less salient. In Guatemala, uh, indigenous Mayans bore the brunt of the war to the point where three courts in Guatemala have found that genocide was committed during the war that lasted from 1960 uh, to 2000 and, no, I'm sorry, to 1996. Um, so that's one thing. Second thing, is that I find Guatemala interesting because you can trace really clearly the through line between people running the military and especially military intelligence, both during and immediately after the war and the corrupt actors of today. The people who are running private security rackets, who have been in control of the ports and the customs and the immigration, uh, who have created alliances with narco traffickers, uh, and you can see in a way that is absolutely graphic, it's the same people who were involved in the repression during the Civil War years that are now involved in these corrupt rackets and enterprises. This is also true to some extent in the other countries, in El Salvador and, and in Honduras, but it's not as easy to see the, the through line. I think Guatemala is kind of the poster child for this. All right, thank you so much for explaining about the Guatemala case and what makes it different from other countries in the region. Moving on to our third question. As has been seen in the past several decades throughout Central America, administrations have consistently employed mano dura policies, which have been denounced by human rights advocates all across the globe. As you said in your article, as gang-related violence, extortion, and control of territory has worsened, the military's mano dura, tough on crime policy has led to new reports of repurposed old tactics, including extensive arbitrary detention, chronic states of emergency, extrajudicial killings, forced disappearances, and forced displacement coupled with government denial. Have you seen success from Manoluda policies to any extent in the region, whether that be in satisfaction from Central Americans or lower homicide rates? Well, the, the second half of that question is a lot harder to answer than the first, as you might imagine. Um, so has there been success from Manoluda policies? Not that we can tell. There's not a lot of evidence that shows that these policies reduce homicide rates. Um, and that's for several reasons. Um, one is in situations of high unemployment and few options for young men, there's an endless supply of foot soldiers, both for gangs and for nar narco traffickers. 
Um, so you can put them in jail, you can take them out, you can kill them, but there's an endless supply. So nothing changes. The strategy of taking down the heads of the cartels or trying to do that with gangs, what ends up happening is they splinter uh, and that creates more violence. And that's been the pattern, especially in Mexico uh, and to some extent in Guatemala, where there's been a kingpin strategy of either killing or carting off to jail the heads of the various cartels, but rather than making the phenomenon go away, what you do is you splinter these groups into lots of different factions, which then fight for control um, and homicides either stay the same or go up. Um, the third piece of it, uh, which we see especially in El Salvador, is that homicide figures have gone down but forced disappearance figures have gone up. And what people speculate is going on is that the deal with the gangs in El Salvador was bring the murder rate down. At one point, El Salvador had the highest murder rate in the world outside of a war zone. Um, and just don't let us know what you've done with the bodies. Uh, this is also something that's happened in Mexico. So there are, again, uh, numbers of disappeared people uh, found in clandestine graves, especially, as I say, in El Salvador and in Mexico. Uh, so yes, the murder rate has come down, but it's only because we're no longer finding the bodies. Um, the other thing to say about uh, Manolura is that it's often also been a way of favoring some gangs or some cartels, uh, those who negotiate with certain government officials. Uh, over others who are attacked more. So, you know, you use the military to go after your business rival kind of idea. Um, having said that, of course, people want to see gangs stop preying on their neighbors. And especially since a lot of the uh, gang activity that people see is extortion, uh, is control over who comes in and out of neighborhoods, uh, so in the abstract, these policies have support until it's the young men in your neighborhood who are taken away and everybody says, oh, but they weren't gang members. Yes, but. Um, now, in terms of the second, I mean, what's the path forward? Gee, you know, if I had an easy answer to that, um, I wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be trying to implement it. It's complicated. It's multifaceted. It involves rethinking the drug war. Um, Colombia's new president has basically said, look, you know, a militarization strategy on drugs has failed. Um, and I think that's right. Uh, there needs to be some combination of decriminalization, demobilization, and job creation aimed at the young people who are in gangs uh, and the young people who are the foot soldiers, combined with better intelligence work, frankly, uh, aimed at dismantling the leadership structures uh, of these organizations. The other part of it is none of this is possible without changes in the larger um, sort of rule of law, right? So political changes, changes in the tax code, uh, the amount of uh, taxes paid by elites in the countries we're talking about is incredibly low. And you, you know, and so 
what kind of alternatives can you create? Well, it's very hard to do when you're taking in almost nothing in taxes from the rich. Um, you're almost entirely dependent on consumer taxes. And even more than that, the little bit that you do take in is then uh, drained away in corruption scandals. Um, you need an independent judiciary. We're going the other way, both in El Salvador and in Guatemala. There have been uh, attacks on the independence of the judiciary, so much that in Guatemala, for instance, uh, most of the independent judges are now in exile. Uh, and the others are under continual attack. The same is true of independent prosecutors. And this has happened in El Salvador as well. So you have to attack all of that. And the problem is that you have to attack it all at once. Uh, and that makes it very, very difficult. But I do think that to keep doing the same thing over and over again, as Einstein said, that's insanity. And that's what we're doing. Thank you so much for your answer to that question, Professor. I know it's a difficult and daunting one to answer because that's exactly what we all want to know, right? Is what is the pathway forward for, for this region? My next question is, given the demise of the Guatemala Commission Against Impunity and similar bodies in other Central American states, what is a feasible mechanism to ensure sweeping checks and balances against authoritarian leaders in Central America? Well, I guess the first thing to say is that the reports of the demise of the Guatemalan Commission model may be premature. Um, the new government in Honduras is in negotiations with the United Nations to try to create a new Commission Against Impunity in Honduras modeled on CCIG. Now, it's not clear to me, at least, exactly how that's going to turn out, if the mandate is going to be robust and independent enough uh, for this to actually work. But there is, I think, a recognition that the model works. The problem is, how do you avoid the backlash? Um, you know, CC did a historic job in uh, uncovering and dismantling networks of, uh, of corruption. The problem is that they were unable to forestall and to overcome, uh, especially given uh, unfavorable administration in the US uh, and not a lot of, um, ability for civil society to actually uh, do a whole lot about it, um, they, were over, they were overwhelmed by the backlash. Um, so I don't think we've seen the last of CC types uh, of uh, bodies. Um, having said that, it's clear that there needs to be some kind of external support for um, checks and balances, as you say, for an independent judiciary. Uh, one thing that some organizations that I work with are trying to do is to create um, civil society evaluations of the people who are being proposed for high-ranking 
positions in the prosecutor's office or in the judiciary in an attempt to at the very least weed out the worst of them through public pressure. Um, there are also some uh, attempts to use, for example, the inter-American system uh, in order to um, create some checks and balances from outside. But basically, there needs to be economic, political, and moral pressure on these leaders, and it has to come from inside as well as outside. So what the outside can do is support uh, the ability of civil society to organize, for instance. Guatemala passed a law that makes it very, very difficult for non-governmental organizations to survive. El Salvador has talked about doing this on several occasions, and up till now, the pushback has been enough that they've backed off. Uh, but this is a, a constant uh, concern. Um, you know, it, it's difficult to think about where the pressure comes from, because if it just comes from the US, that's not good enough. Um, it has to be more uh, broad based, and especially, I think, from other countries in Latin America, with whom, you know, these regional leaders have strong ties, because otherwise, what we're seeing is, for example, in El Salvador, Bukele making political hay uh, out of his uh, opposition to what the U.S. is asking him to do uh, and trying to use uh, the uh, ties with China to create a counterbalance to the U.S. It's not clear to me that that's going to work, but that's clearly what he's trying to do. Um, having said that, this isn't the first generation of dictators in this region. And eventually... Um, enough public, private, and international pressure uh, was brought to bear that the military had to uh, at least uh, recede from a direct role in the government. The question is, who's learned more from that prior generation, whether it's the new generation of authoritarians or whether it's those people who are fighting against them? Thank you so much for answering that question. I'm going to hand it off to Ariana now, who's going to ask the next couple questions. Hi, Professor. Um, my name is Ariana. I'm going to be doing the second half of the interview. Thank you so much for being here with Bye. us. So my first question is, how does the approach that each government should have to address gang violence and drug cartel violence differ for each of the four countries in North and Central America? And if the answers don't lie in Manaluda policies or in becoming a government that participates in state-sponsored protection rackets through negotiations with the illicit groups, where do you think that they lie? So, yes, each of these countries is a different dynamic, clearly. Um, as I said, Mexico, uh, up until 2000, was pretty much a one-party state. And there was a kind of modus vivendi with the um, with the drug cartels, a kind of, okay, you know, we'll leave you alone as long as you're not too violent and you give us a cut. Uh, and the drug cartels were quite happy to do that. When the PRI lost power in Mexico for the first time in 2000, uh, that opened up um, 
a sort of a bit of a wild west in terms of who did these cartels now ally with. At the same time, there were processes of decentralization going on in Mexico that made it more interesting um, to for cartels to penetrate local governments, local and regional governments. And so in Mexico, what you've got is a set of ever-changing, ever-fighting uh, drug cartels uh, that are, I suppose at this point, it's a misnomer to talk about drug cartels because they also are involved in lots of other sectors of the economy, from mining to avocados to uh, oil pipeline siphoning to extortion to human trafficking. Um, nonetheless, there's been, since 2006, this uh, militarized policy to go after um, the cartels. At the same time, they are closely intertwined with state-level officials and elements of the military. Um, even as other elements, especially of the military, use the drug war as an excuse to accumulate vast power over the society and economy. For example, uh, in Mexico, the, this earlier this year, um, the current government, when it came into power, created a National Guard, which was supposed to be a civilian police type organization. Uh, and this year it was formally created, it was formally transferred to the Ministry of Defense and is now under the control of the military, as is the control of roads, uh, tourist train in Yucatan, the airport, the ports, etc. Um, in Guatemala, uh, part of the military works with narco-traffickers, who again are not just narco-traffickers, they're also human traffickers, etc. Uh, another part doesn't necessarily do so, um, but is uh, deeply invested in a status quo that only works because not only the military, but a part of the private sector works with um, uh, the cartels, right? Um, in El Salvador, it's more about gangs and, and territorial control than it is about narco-trafficking. Um, there's, it's not the same kind of transshipment point that Guatemala and Mexico are. Um, post-war governments, including this one, but not limited to this one, have tried to use the gangs there as a political force. Uh, in other words, get your members to vote for us and we'll give you privileges when you're in jail, um, even while publicly raging against the gangs to maintain public support. So there's always been this kind of two-facedness to it. Um, but the downside of doing this, and it may, you know, a lot of people have said, well, what's the alternative? Um, you know, if you want uh, some degree of peace and tranquility, you know, these are our major force. You have to negotiate with them. Well, the problem is that that gives the gangs the power to turn the violence up or down, uh, depending on what you are or are not giving them. And that's what we're seeing now in El Salvador. Uh, and that creates tensions between the government and the gangs, even while at the same time, 
the gangs have negotiated with this government. There are a lot of instances of local officials um, who are you know, working together with the gangs, others who are not. So it's not a simple on off. Um, so, you know, there's both collaboration and competition. There's a usage of the, you know, sort of existence of organized crime to justify militarization. Um, but at the same time, organized crime makes it very, very difficult for any kind of viable de development strategy uh, to actually be implemented in any of these places. Thank you so much, Professor, for answering that question and discussing the very important distinctions between the dynamics of illicit groups in each of the four countries in North and Central America. Um, my next question is, in your article, you discuss the influence of corruption on gang violence, expressing that it has infected the fight against gang violence. Governments in North and Central America are consistently in negotiations with the gangs and drug cartels, as you have discussed. So why are gangs and drug cartels perceived as a government's enemy when they do work so closely together for their mutual benefit? Well, that is what I was saying before. It's it, You have both alliances and contradictions, right, in each country, and they're different in each country. Um, the narrative that I find really harmful is the narrative that says this is only about these nasty, nasty drug cartels and, and you know gang members with tattoos on their faces, and they're the ones that the righteous government is trying to suppress. That's a very dangerous and untrue narrative, um, and that's the narrative that, of course, the governments of each of these each of these countries would very much like to um, maintain, right? for their own reasons. Um, I think that moving from there to a much more nuanced um, view of the relationship between these forces of organized crime or these gangs, um, and they're not exactly the same thing, right? Um, there's, it's important to recognize that it, this is not a good versus evil narrative, you know, the sort of good government against the evil uh, organized crime or gangs. Um, they're in bed with each other, right? Uh, and the people who end up losing as a result of this narrative are the civilians, the people who are not... Um, part of this or the people who are the even the foot soldiers, right? Um, so we have now in Mexico a number of disappearances that have never been seen before in the country, you know, well over 120,000 people um, can't be found, are buried somewhere in uh, clandestine graves or are just disappeared, right? Um, in El Salvador, we're seeing a similar phenomenon, as I mentioned, where the number of murders reported has gone down, but the number of forced disappearances has skyrocketed. Um, so it's you know, sort of changing that narrative to recognize that 
you can't maintain the status quo uh, of you know sort of business as usual with these governments uh, and providing lots and lots of money for their militaries in order to take on the cartels is not going to get you where you need to go. That there, and that, to its credit, the Biden administration has gone some little way in recognizing this and talking about root causes and talking about the need to create economic alternatives. But at the same time, a lot of the money that is going into um, Central America is still going towards this militarization Manudura strategy, which has been shown not to work well. Um, so I think that's pretty much what uh, what can be said is that it's important to change the narrative. It's important to recognize that the government is intertwined with these illegal and, and um, you know organized crime groups, and that in order to pull them apart, there needs to be a recognition that the status quo, doesn't work and that there need to be broader political and economic changes in these countries and that those are going to require um, pressuring or allowing the emergence of a new group of elites uh, that is much less predatory because the ones you've got there now are just there to steal the country blind. And as long as that's what you've got, nothing's going to change. Thank you, Professor, for outlining the critical differences that um, exist and in this very nuanced relationship between the government and illicit groups. For the last question, I want to focus on um, El Salvador. So the people of El Salvador have been deeply hurt by violence, primarily gang violence. Yet there's a harmful narrative surrounding the strong support that Bukele, the president, has positioning Salvadorans as complacent individuals of Bukele's actions, like those resulting from his Manalura policies. The issue is more nuanced than presented through this harmful narrative. How would you address the experiences of Salvadorans under a state controlled by gangs resulting in Bukele's popularity? And how do you express to a society whose rights have been violated through this violence that the rights of gang members should be respected? So I think the problem is twofold. The first is who's considered a gang member, and the second is the conditions in prison. Um, about the first, the problem now is that Bukele, with uh, widespread public support, um, seven months ago put in place a state of emergency. Um, it's now seven months later, and the state of emergency is still there. And it's swept broadly. Uh, lots of non-gang-related youth have been thrown in jail. There are at least 11 people who have died in jail. Uh, there's lots of information that they're being pretty indiscriminate in going after poor young men. Uh, and that is slowly creating opposition, especially among the family members who you can see going from prison to prison to prison, first trying to find their family members and then trying to bring them food, et cetera, explain that they're not actually gang members. Um, and under state of emergency, that's pretty hard to do. 
Um, part of the problem is that in part due to the state of emergency and in part due to a gang gag law that um, promises to throw in jail anyone in the media who reports anything about the gangs that doesn't toe the um, government line, right? Uh, it's been very, very difficult to get information out. The media is basically controlled. Uh, there have been attacks on civil society and opposition parties and the media. Um, the opposition parties at this point are practically dormant um, due to their own mistakes and in power. Um, so it's uh, hard to get traction um, without any ability to uh, access most of the media. And also, as I said before, with the threat of a law that would um, regulate non-governmental organizations in El Salvador to the point where most of them would disappear. Uh, and that's hanging over the head of people who might say something about um, what's going on there. Nonetheless, there are a number of valiant organizations. Uh, Cristosal is one. The Human Rights Commission is another. Uh, there are some women's organizations that are active uh, that are working to try to uh, break through this um, media control by the government. Um, the second problem is the, the, the sort of conditions in, in prison. And I understand that it's hard for people to have a whole lot of sympathy for people who are perceived as gang members who have been extraordinarily predatory in their communities, uh, you know, extorting small business owners, not letting people move around freely, creating all kinds of conditions of violence. So, you know, it's understandable. Um, but the problem is that if you've got this broad sweep of people, some of them are not gang members going in, but if the conditions are horrible, the only way they're going to survive is by allying with one gang or the other. And so when they get out, they are gang members. So you're just perpetuating the problem. Uh, now, having said that, you know, sort of, it's not a popular position to take. I understand that. Uh, but I do think that in the long run, um, it sort of the abandonment of basic human rights standards doesn't ever quite work the way people think it will. Thank you so much, Professor, for that answer. I think it's a very important question to be asking right now. And you provided a lot of incredible insight and in how nuanced it is. And this position that, you know, you may have said not a popular one, but it's an important one that we need to have. Before we end the um, interview, we just wanted to ask if you had any closing thoughts and also what direction is the future of your research in this field headed? Well, there, there's a lot of work to be done here, as you might imagine. So I'm working in two different directions. One is to sort of join a number of people who have been trying to rethink what needs to happen uh, in the wake of transitions away from dictatorship or away from armed conflict, uh, to think more not just about civil and political rights, but about rule of law more broadly, and especially 
who's taking over uh, the levers of um, economic power to make sure that number one, you're not setting up the conditions for a corrupt um, narco state, right? Um, controlled by organized crime. Uh, and two, that you have robust protections for some of the things that are necessary for any kind of functioning state, uh, like an independent judiciary. And then the other piece of that, I'm working on a book right now, uh, on the link between corruption, especially this kind of statewide capture of the institutions of the state by corrupt forces, which you see in several of the states in the region, um, what is the link between that and human rights? So I'm hoping that will be done in the next year. And um, I, I think it's an area that both human rights people and people who are working on corruption and also people who are working on environmental protection need to think about. Thank you so much, Professor, for having this conversation with us today. We have, as you know, our whole section in the journal, uh, Development of Crime and Conflict in North and Central America, dedicated to this region and the historical and future implications of the violence and corruption that this region has experienced. So we are very, very grateful to have the opportunity to have spoken with you today and have this very detailed conversation with you. That concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you to Professor Ro Ariasa for the opportunity to speak with her.